everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Guidepost in Motion, a podcast highlighting risk, compliance, and security professionals with insights meant to keep you, your business, and your operations moving forward. My name is Julie Myers-Wood, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Guidepost Solutions. Today, I'm very excited to welcome to our podcast compliance legend, Eric Young. In early 2020, after spending close to 40 years in chief compliance roles at some of the world's largest financial institutions, Eric began his new venture, Young Enterprises, a compliance advisory firm. Eric really has a great background. He began his career at the Federal Reserve as an analyst. He served as a chief compliance officer at five global banks, He has been an adjunct professor of compliance at Fordham University School of Law. He currently sits on the board of advisors for two artificial intelligence companies, as well as webdoctors.com and Hyperverge. And in his spare time, he recently published his first book, Declaration of Independence, How Independent Compliance Officers and Directors Can Hold Management More Accountable. Eric, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. Uh, Please tell our listening audience a little bit about your journey from compliance officer to entrepreneur and now author. So first of all, thank you, Julie, uh, and and Guidepost for for having me. It's an honor being here. I I like to believe that leaving BMP was just at the right time, is right before the pandemic, but more importantly, after 40 years of of being a CCO and, and a regulator, it was time to leave because I had achieved success uh, with BNP Paribas for the Americas region with respect to um, a compliance program we delivered ultimately. And so it's the right time to go and the right time to give back with respect to teaching at Fordham Law to our future generation and also to provide compliance advisory services for other firms that may need the help uh, based on my experience. Uh, that makes total sense, Eric. Um, one of the things I know you must have done when you worked as a chief compliance officer at these different firms is worked with external compliance consultants, um, either for independent reviews or just regular consulting. Can you talk a little more about that experience and uh, you know your perceptions of external consultants while you were inside financial institutions and then why you thought it made sense for you to transition into a consultant type role? Absolutely. I'll start with outside uh, consultants first and then I'll get into to monitors. I've worked with them throughout my career. They're essential components of what I call the ecosystem to strengthen our system of internal controls, compliance, and, and ethics. And to provide a fresh perspective, particularly to, to benchmark how we're doing uh, relative to the industry or relative to the external environment, particularly now with so many changes going on, especially with with technology. With respect to monitors, yes, it's important to to work with monitors. And and for me, especially because what I've done throughout my career is re-engineer compliance programs to enable growth. Sometimes that means uh, being recruited and, and joining a firm that has had challenges from a regulatory and control point of view, where a monitor has been uh, compelled to, to be a part of that remediation. I have found with the different monitors I've worked with throughout my career, 
that they uh, add value. They are absolutely independent. They're the eyes and ears of regulators, but also provide important information as to whether we're on the right track or not, because why spend millions of dollars and effort to find out that it's it's not the answer, that we're not addressing the risk. So monitors play a, a critical role. And in terms of myself, migrating from a CCO to first a CEO, I'm, I'm very focused on the accountability of CEOs of, of major firms. So experiencing being a C- CEO, I think is important, um, particularly the, seeing the good, bad, and the ugly of how firms work, how cultures work across an organization, and where ethics, conduct, and compliance ultimately need to be a part of the equation to keep CEOs accountable, but more importantly, the culture, the right culture, the right ethics to enable an effective compliance program for, for the long run. So if you think of consultants, monitors, the role of CEOs, the culture of an organization, it's all part of the fabric of an effective compliance program ultimately. The sentencing guidelines, the Fed's uh, expectations around complex compliance, they're all important. The question going forward is, are they enough to sustain the right culture and compliance uh, for the long run? Eric, certainly thinking about how you can develop the right kind of culture and compliance and really be sustainable is part of your book, right? Part of your new book and and part of the reason that you decided to write a book. I want to turn to that uh, book and and talk a little more about it. Really uh, piqued my interest in several respects. The book is written in two parts with two covers, which I'll also get to in a minute. Um, But I'm very interested in the title, Declaration of Independence. So Mm -hmm. how did you come up with that title and what are you hoping to accomplish for those that might pick up your book and try to decide if it's uh, worth reading? So first, I'm very passionate about the role of compliance, where they fit into an organization. And throughout my career, I've seen what works, what doesn't work, and clearly the independence of the compliance officer is paramount. Now, independence can mean different things, structure, access, credibility, but it's it's really being free and clear from management with direct access to the board of directors to provide to them in a storytelling way whether the firm is within the risk appetite, the compliance risk appetite, in an acceptable way. Now, the, the challenge is by reporting into the general counsel of chief risk officer or being constrained from a budget point of view, limits and, and shackles, if you will, uh, and I have a, a, a metaphor about uh, the allegory of the, the cave in Plato's Republic about being shackled and, and held prisoner, if you will, uh, to the extent that compliance is not able to escalate important Uh, issues, whether whistleblowing or compliance risks, to the board who has a fiduciary responsibility of loyalty and care for its shareholders and broader stakeholders. If the board is not given that independent uh, information from compliance, then they might not be fulfilling that duty and ultimately reputational damage, uh, major fines, 
billions, millions of, of dollars in, in penalties could occur. So independence is paramount and the role of compliance is critical uh, to enable that role by the board to be to be met. But Eric, who can actually declare their independence? Um, how often is a CCO really in a position to make that sort of statement? You know, is a board the one that's able to stand up? I mean, this is really asking a lot in terms of a mindset change for, for companies. Absolutely. So some of my recommendations, which are in part two of the book, provide legislative proposals, but some of it can also be uh, done already by the board, by management, and I've been at firms where I have been independent, uh, having direct access not only to the CEO, direct reporting, but also direct access to the board. So part of it is the appetite of the firm, the culture of the firm itself to want to have compliance reporting directly, not only in terms of reporting line like the audit department and to the audit committee, but also in terms of information, unfettered information. And if you're a compliance officer and you don't have that level of independence, what should you do? What what sort of advice would you give to a compliance officer who's really in a tough right position? They sure. are, they're often targeted for <laughs> investigative action or other things. You know, how do they how do they manage this without leaving the company? Or is that their only option? It's not the only option. A lot of it depends on the credibility the clarity that the uh, compliance officer has. I call it the five C's, courage, clarity, credibility. Um, I always forget the other two, but it's in the book. Confidence with respect to the CCO itself. Now, if the CCO reports into the general counsel as they often do, particularly in industrial firms or the CRO in financial institutions, you still need the five C's. It's a two-way street with respect to their bosses, the CCO's bosses, if that's the structure, for the general counsel, the CRO, to give the CCO autonomy. That's independence. The freedom and the budget to um, have the right people, the right tools in particular, to do their job. So independence today doesn't have to be directly to the board, but it needs to be. And in the absence of that, then it's the autonomy of the CCO provided by their management. Well, certainly you've seen it work many different ways in, in your career. And yes. what I really like about the book is you do spend some time talking about personal lessons learned. I think part one really focuses on that. But interestingly, there's a photograph of a small schoolboy on the cover. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Walking on the edge of the sidewalk. Uh, who is that little boy? Is that you? Yes, it's uh, me, probably about four or five years old. I thought it was a good picture because I described myself in, in the early chapters of the book as happy-go-lucky, the middle child. I was number two of three. And balancing, if you will, on the sidewalk being a metaphor for being balanced in controlling and, and serving a business because a CCO and compliance can do both. It's important to do both. That's how compliance adds value. So it's a matter of not just saying yes or only saying no. You can actually get to the right solution by being credible, confident, 
uh, clear, courageous, et cetera, um, with the business, with the board. That's uh, the, the, the visual, if you will. But there are uh, lots of personal anecdotes, uh, which ultimately end each chapter with lessons learned, the audience being the board, management, and in particular, our future compliance leaders that hopefully these lessons learned will help. Well, absolutely. To have these kind of concrete examples, I think is extremely helpful for individuals who are navigating, you know, how could they be a successful CCO? I would love for you to share a couple of those stories. I, I, you know, my, my son's a big baseball player. So of course I love the CCO as catcher analogy, (laughs) right? um, But maybe share a little bit of your kind of personal stories or analogies that you often use. So the CCO as as catcher essentially means that if if you're familiar with baseball, the catcher is the only one that sees the full field of play, the enterprise, if you will, because each of the other baseball players on defense are facing all in the same direction, which is the batter. But it's the catcher that reallocates the defensive alignment, is involved in every play and every pitch is really driving the strategy and that's the importance of of the compliance officer. I've got well, and the a, catcher. A, the catcher calls all the all the shots, right? Exactly. They call all the pitches. So the exactly. catcher is the one. You know, you love to think about an organization where the compliance officer is, you know, calling the shots in those difficult scenarios, right? And not deferring it, deferring it to others. So I think that's a great analogy. Absolutely, and oftentimes catchers become future managers of the team itself because of the knowledge that they bring, uh, the ability to work with with all players, which is what compliance officers need to do is to be collaborative, including with the the star uh, pitcher or the outfielder, so to speak. I've got other examples, which I'll let people read, but in terms of uh, themes, roommate with the meat hook. Uh, That sounds a bit ominous, but that's about one of my experiences in which Persistence was was key. The chapter is basically called, if you can't stand the heat, stay in the kitchen, don't leave the kitchen. And if you think of compliance officers, they're under tremendous pressure from all sides, business, management, uh, sometimes their own teams or, or colleagues. There's tremendous pressure, but it's a matter of uh, being persistent, courageous, as, as I always say risk assessments and, and subways. I, my metaphors tend to be uh, a bit unusual, um, but I think they make the point. So that I've got one about minding the gap. People take for granted that there's a gap between the train and the platform. And they forget that these are actually very dangerous risks. Construction work, It's I think that's a common metaphor, but the question is, what happens when all the work is done, but someone decides to dismantle all that great construction work or weaken the foundation? And we know what happens when there are weak controls and foundations. Feel the dreams. I think that's clear, again, if you're a baseball fan as to if you build it, they will come. And then in that sense, it's about customers, stakeholders, shareholders, if you build it right. And then the Bermuda Triangle, um, I've published in a separate article, but it's about what happens when you have a matrix management and and in this case, three bosses that couldn't work well together. How do you overcome that Bermuda Triangle, so to speak, and still achieve uh, compliance success, which is also success for the company? 
Well, Eric, in part two of the book, you also talk about a triangle, perhaps not a Bermuda Triangle, but something that <laughs> is often uh, perhaps as, as frustrating. You show an image, a triangle with the words board of directors liable on the top, then you have compliance liable on the bottom and management not accountable in the middle. Um, the image also depicts a red dotted arrow from the bottom to the top with the words CCO unable to meet with the board to enable board fiduciary duties. Can you explain to me kind of what you're trying to get across kind of with this image um, and uh, to show the challenges that CCOs have fulfilling uh, their roles and talk a little bit about that as well as um, what your focus is in part two, which is the duty and care of sustaining effective compliance programs. Absolutely. So it, it's meant to be a, a pyramid and I love working with uh, math and, and geometry. So I have different stories or images that are very geometric, so to speak. In this case, it's about the board being quite liable and increasingly so because there have been some landmark cases uh, which create a greater duty of, of care and expectation of boards of directors to not only be aware that there's a compliance program, but actually be on top of whether the compliance program is, is working and how they uh, challenge management, which is not accountable, less liable for their actions or worse, their inactions. And oftentimes because the CEO is also the chairman of the board, the question is, how independent really is the board? Then on the bottom of the pyramid is compliance, uh, including the CCO. It could also include employees such as whistleblowers. And the challenge is management in the middle who is least accountable, controls the agenda of the board through the general counsel, controls the budget of expenses through the CFO, even controls what and how risk is uh, conveyed to the board, uh, which ultimately prevents compliance in articulating, in some ways, the most important risks, i.e. reputational risks and indirectly cybersecurity risks to the board. And without access to the board because of this buffer or this constraint of, of ma unaccountable management, that's a major problem. So what part two does in, in three sections, if you will, is give a little history uh, of the system of internal accounting controls, topical compliance silos, which are very uh, siloed in terms of AML, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So specializing in particular areas of the law, but not looking at the enterprise. Ultimately, it leads to the conclusion that technology, the fourth industrial revolution, if you will, is blurring industrial sectors, financial sectors, uh, creating even more risk ultimately to um, pose danger to our national security. Now, Homeland Security has a grid of 16 industrial sectors, including finance, communications, media, et cetera. And through my six recommendations, I highlight why the sentencing guidelines and uh, the feds and other regulatory expectations are not enough to break the cycle of companies always creating reputational damage, 
always making the same mistake during periods of deregulation leading to re-regulation. So my six recommendations, which I call the compliance hexagon, leads into what I call a cleaner and more efficient organization through different means, ultimately targeting management to be more accountable through legislative and, and uh, organizational means. I can go through the six recommendations as to, or highlight them if that's helpful or, or um, answer them based on your specific questions. Sure. I think, I mean, I think our audience would love to hear the six specific recommendations. So first is educating and enlightening the board. Uh, there's so much literature and discussion around the sentencing guidelines, but the question is how aware, how knowledgeable is the board around what it really means around their responsibilities, particularly because their liability can be actually higher. Holding management accountable, it sounds nice. The question is, how so? And there's different means in, in doing so. And uh, the book compares and contrasts the US um, regime versus the UK, the Netherlands, China, Japan, as to who do they really hold accountable? Is it the CCO or is it management or both? And what I recommend is looking at and adopting some of these other countries' regulatory regimes that creates more accountability. Some of my recommendations are a bit draconian, but they're meant to be provocative. Uh, they're meant for legislators to consider, including looking at RICO statutes, creating more fear, which I hate to use that word, but that changes behavior when there's personal accountability, which today is, is not enough um, in the U.S. with management. Deferred prosecution. So, so wait, wait, let, let's go to the RICO. How would you how would you suggest using the RICO statutes here? I think that's a, an interesting uh, suggestion. <laughs> I, I figure that would be provocative. Well, there's concepts, of course, in which corporations are held responsible for employee actions, but there's other statutes and provisions, carve-outs, I call them, which allow individuals to get off a bit easy based on the fact that they say, I didn't know, it was more an act of neglect, and it creates more of a hook, as other countries have done, uh, to create more accountability despite being neglectful or too far removed. I think, if anything, uh, management has too many layers. And if you think of the role of, and, and position of compliance, they're meant to be two or three layers level uh, below the CEO to insulate the CEO, but at the same time, create more neglect. Now, board members are more uh, accountable for neglect. The question is, why not management? So RICO statutes and RICO-like statutes are a way of, of doing so. Uh, some regulators have used the RICO statutes, I believe, with the J.P. Morgan case and, and uh, the spoofing issues of, of last year. Will they work to be determined? Will they create some fear? Absolutely. Um, now, you can't run compliance by fear alone. Incentives do of course, help. That's why we have deferred prosecution agreements and and other types of, of tools, if you will. But there's not enough accountability of management. And, and because firms can 
afford to pay these multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar fines, something's got to be a bit more dramatic in terms of legislative and other changes. Well, that's certainly very provocative. I mean, I, I am not sure I, I want compliance to be run just by fear at all, right? Sure. I mean, it's such a hard time to um, get really good quality people to be compliance officers because they're worried about being personal. Their own liabilities. Right, their own liability. Same thing with board members, right, yes. and others. So I think it's definitely your book is going to give us a lot to think about and talk about. And so tell us, Eric, where can we get your book? Where can we where can we find it? Amazon. It, it, it'll first be available uh, by ebook, and then the printed copy about a week or so. It'll be available through Amazon. I've also established a, a publishing uh, company. It's called Ethical Pebble publishing and the concept if you can imagine it is a couple things one a pebble in the shoe is never comfortable but being ethical and compliant is not always supposed to be comfortable um, so that's the metaphor there another visual is uh, throwing children throwing the ethical pebble back into the cultural lake if you will of of the company but it, the book will be available through Amazon and through my publishing company. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining our podcast today and good luck. Best of thank luck you. with your book and your new consulting venture. Thank you so much. Oh, it's, it's just such a great pleasure to connect with you again. And I also want to, of course, thank our listening audience for tuning in. Of course, for more information about enhancing your company's compliance, investigative or security program, please visit our website at guideposttsolutions.com. Thanks very much. Have a great day.